Amen. Please be seated, friends. And uh, again, good morning and welcome. Uh, we're going to dig into God's Word together today. If you're new joining us or re- recently back, we're uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. So I want to invite you to turn to uh, Matthew chapter 5, either on your phone or your tablet or if you brought your Bible. There's also Bibles under the seat and in front of you if you want to grab one of those. It's page 962, 962 is uh, Matthew chapter 5. These are three chapters. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 are all what's called the Sermon on the Mount. And we're spending our summer weeks uh, unpacking that and looking at it together. Uh, I wonder if uh, you remember, if you're old enough in the room, uh, whose who's, uh, ad campaign was Think Different with a period like that? Anybody remember that from whew, 20 years ago probably? It was, uh, remember Nike, Nike said, just do it? This is Apple. So while Nike was saying, just do it, Apple was saying, think different, right? And they had these ads where they were showing all these really heroic individuals uh, who were, you know, had the courage and the daring to challenge the status quo and think different about a given situation or a given product or a given problem in the world. And uh, the world changed because people were willing to think different, right? Um, Interestingly, in those commercials, of all the people they were, uh, the heroes that they were talking about that invited us to think differently, Jesus wasn't one of them. Uh, And yet, I would propose to you that the ultimate gauntlet thrown down, the ultimate line in the sand inviting us to be people who think different uh, was actually given by our Savior, Jesus Christ. And this is what we're seeing in this sermon as he's telling his listeners, hey, you need to think different. Uh, You need to be transformed through the renewing of your mind as his friend Paul would write later uh, to the Romans. This verse is probably super familiar to you uh, if you've walked with Jesus or been around the church for a while about having a a renewed or a transformed mind, but I invite you to see it just in a different translation uh, this morning that kind of maybe freshens it up for you, and and, uh, sometimes just a little pivoting in the wording can make something pop and and seem new and and change us in, in a different way. So Paul would write this, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world But let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. There's the think different. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. And that's what we want, right? We want to know what God wants from us. What is his will for us? It comes through having a mind that's transformed because we become new people as he's at work in us. Uh, Today we're going to wrap up chapter 5, a lot to cover. We're going to kind of blast through it together. And uh, you may may recall from the last two Sundays, uh, as Brian spoke, and then we looked last week at divorce and remarriage together, that the way Jesus goes about uh, this invitation to think differently is he keeps saying the same introductory phrase over and over again, which is, you have heard this, but now I'm saying to you, this. He's saying something new. He's changing what they've always thought and what they've always heard, and he's elevating it and really raising the bar to a standard of righteousness of the kingdom of that Father that loves us so much that we've just been singing about. Here's the $20 word that the theologians use to talk about these topics that Jesus covers, the six antitheses. So he, has, he covers six different topics where he says, you used to think and hear this, but now I'm saying to you something new and something daring and something different, inviting you to think differently. Here are the six topics, anger, lust, divorce, 
oaths, retaliation, and loving our enemies. All super easy stuff to deal with, right? <laughs> Jesus says some hard things and teaches, teaches some really incredible standards. Let me, though, remind us that we, we talked about some really important clues last week for how do, how do we read what Jesus is teaching? How do we take it in? How do we apply it? How do we deal with some of these things that, that seem pretty impossible, seem like a standard of perfection and holiness that we can't attain to? And remember, the punchline is, that's right, we can't. And he does it for us. And then he empowers us little by little to change is what we're going to see. So, First clue for how to read and see and understand what Jesus is saying is to remember that his whole point through all of chapter five is that God's standard is absolute perfection. And I'm telling, he's, he's saying to the crowd, here's what the law is all about. Here's what it really means. It's not external fake righteousness. It's a changed heart that's actually a way higher standard than just the black and white statements of the law actually mean. And he also says, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. And guess what? The awesome, the the scribes and the Pharisees that you think are so awesome and they're on the high pedestal for how righteous they are, their righteousness doesn't cut it because it's not of the heart. It's just external most of the time. And he, he like goes after them in each one of these six topics. So the law can't be relaxed and they were relaxing it. And he's shining a light on that. The second clue for how to read the Sermon on the Mount and how to apply it to our lives is to understand that there was things in the minds and the hearts of that original audience that we don't see in the black and white text. And we have to study and dig and find out and learn about what was in the culture, what were the people that Jesus was talking to, what were they already thinking when he said, I'm inviting you to think differently because there's more to it than just the words that are on the page. And that's the good hard work of studying and unpacking God's word together. So we need to know what were they thinking when he asked them to think differently because it's different than what you and I are thinking, right? Last thing is that the cross and the resurrection haven't yet happened. And that's a major clue because he's talking to people who are still under the law. And today you and I sit here in this room and we are no longer under the law the way, his, uh, way Jesus' audience was when he was presenting these truths to them because what was still coming was he was on his way to the cross and the resurrection and the empty tomb and therefore the power to actually live this stuff out that the people then didn't have and that we don't have without the power of the cross and the power of the resurrection and the gift of his righteousness to us, right? So those are the clues uh, for how we go about figuring out what do we do with this stuff that Jesus is teaching us in this sermon. Now, like I said, these are all heavy-duty topics. Last week, thank you for kindly going on the journey with me through divorce and remarriage. That was a a heavy week to be in together uh, to see what God's Word says about divorce and remarriage. Um, So I thought it'd be good for us to, it's the middle of summer, have a little bit of a lighter moment today as we begin into these last three topics. After all, Pastor Brian had us play Simon Says two weeks ago, uh, so I thought I can do something fun as well, and it's okay to happen at church. So I I thought to introduce uh, subject number four, I would show you one of the greatest courtroom drama scenes of all time to help us think about what it means to take oaths before our God. Take off your hat. Now raise your right hand. Now place your left hand here. Take off your hat. Raise your right hand. Now put your left hand here. Please take off your hat. Raise your right hand. Now put your left hand here. 
Will you please take off your hat? Raise your right hand. <laughs> now put your left hand here. Take off your hat. Raise your right hand. Will you get rid of that hat? Raise your right hand. Raise your right hand. Do you solemnly swear to tell the truth, the truth, and nothing but the truth? Huh? Do you solemnly swear to tell the truth, the truth, and nothing but the truth? Are you trying to give me the double talk? Do you solemnly swear to tell the truth, the truth, and nothing but the truth? Why don't you answer him? He's talking big Latin. I don't know what he's saying. He's asking you if you swear... No, but I know all the words. He's asking you if you'll swear to tell the truth. Truth is stranger than fiction, Judgey Wudgey. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's just, it's funny every time. But it is a little bit of a, I don't know, my wife doesn't think the Three Stooges are funny, and I sit there, like, I've seen them a thousand times, I still laugh, it's still funny, and she's like, it's not funny, it's funny. <laughs> but, so there's Curly in the court asking if he swears to tell the, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, right? And uh, so the first uh, of the topics for us today are the swearing of oaths. And um, now, now what Jesus is going to say is something pretty startling, and we're going to unpack that together. Uh, but I invite you to, to look at it. Let me, uh, let me begin reading in verse 33. He says this, same formula. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But... I say to you, here's the think different part, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair either white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more comes from evil. Or uh, some translations there put the evil one. So what are we talking about when we're talking about oaths? We're not talking about what just happened with the Three Stooges in that video. Uh, what Jesus is talking about is this idea of claiming or appealing to something outside of yourself to validate what you're about to say. Like you're about to make a, a truth claim, you're about to make a promise, you're about to make a statement, and in order to convince the people that you're speaking to that you're, you're being totally honest, you're really going to tell the truth, you appeal to something greater than yourself to, to back up the promise that you're about to make. Or it's even to muster up your own motivation, like I'm about to promise this, I'm going to swear by something outside of myself so that I motivate myself to actually keep and perform uh, what I'm actually going to promise that I'm going to do. And just like the first three topics, Jesus, Jesus starts with, you've heard this, but I'm going to say something new to you. I'm going to change the way you think. So the, the you have heard this part of this one comes from Deuteronomy 30 and verse 2. And uh, says this, this would have been what's in the mind of all of his listeners there. They would have known this passage. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to everything that proceeds out of his mouth. So pretty straightforward, right? If you're going to make a promise to God, you got to do it. There's actually multiple Old Testament passages that, that address this topic. This might have been the, maybe the more prominent of them from Deuteronomy. It actually says in the book of Ecclesiastes, it's better to not make a vow than to make a vow and fail to fulfill it because God has no pleasure in fools, right? Heavy words from the Old Testament. 
Now, while all this is really pretty straightforward, it kind of begs the question, uh, what's going on when Jesus, he, he doesn't just reiterate what the Old Testament says in terms of like, yeah, if you, if you promise something in God's name, you better do it. He goes further and he goes a different direction. He actually pivots and takes his listeners down a new and different path by saying, actually, it's better not to swear an oath to certify that you're being honest. And instead, I'm calling you to be the kind of people who simply live by what they say without appealing to some, uh, something outside of yourself. Let your yes mean yes, and let your no mean no, and then ultimately be so honest and trustworthy and full of integrity that you're gonna do what you say you're gonna do without swearing an oath, right? Pretty clear, pretty straightforward again, but it kind of raises the question, other than that Deuteronomy passage, what was in the heads of his listeners? What was going on in the culture at the time that would cause Jesus to take them down his brand new trail that says, hey, stop making these, all these crazy promises and just live as people who are trustworthy. Who are, what you say is what you do and what you mean, and it's believable. So here's what was going on. Um, at the time, the, the Israelite leadership had all kinds of sort of wild formulas and ways of saying and making their promises that actually created a loophole that got them out of the promise that they just made. They had all kinds of systems, like if you say this, you don't really have to do it, but if you say it this way, well, then it means a little bit more, but if you say it this way, then absolutely, you gotta fulfill that promise. And it was really a lot of hypocrisy and a lot of smoke and mirrors, almost like like a grown-up version of, I got my fingers crossed behind my back and I'm making this promise, but I have no intention of keeping it. We're in Matthew chapter five. A little bit later in Matthew chapter 23 is this famous scene where Jesus is like, woe to you Pharisees for this. And it's called the seven woes. It's a weird word we don't use nowadays, but he says, woe to you, which means like basically you're in a lot of trouble and you're really messed up. And he's like, you hypocrites and you blind guys. He like calls them, it's like the blind leading the blind is what he's, he's saying. No, you know, no um, intent to uh, downplay somebody who has vision impairment, but he's saying that the, the Pharisees are like people who can't see that are trying to show other people how to see and they're just hypocrites about it, right? And he says, woe to you wrath is coming. The way, you're, the way you're teaching people and modeling for people is not God's way. And he says to them, you're swearing by things inside the temple and then saying that that doesn't count anymore for your, for your promise, but only if you swear in the name of God. And he's like, basically, stop doing all these crazy systems and all these fake ways of saying, saying your promises or intending to keep your word that are all really just a big game. One commentator puts it like this, using sort of greater than and less than signs, and said, this is what the Pharisees were doing. If you swear a promise based on the altar, well, that's less than the gift that's laying on the altar, and that's actually less than the temple, and that temple is less than the gold inside the temple, and the temple is less than heaven, and heaven is less than God's throne, and God's throne is less than God himself. And so if you back your way away from God himself all the way to some of those things that are less than, well, you can make a promise based on those and then you're not really compelled to fulfill your promise. That was the kind of games they were playing, which is weird and kind of crazy and quirky, but it was actually what was happening. And Jesus says to them both in Matthew 25 and right here in Matthew 5, like, stop it, guys. This is unacceptable. This is not the kind of righteousness that the Father is seeking with his high standard. Now, 
So what, you know, what's going on for us here is he, is Jesus actually forbidding the swearing in of oaths in any way? Like, is it, is it wrong if you're called to court to testify, to swear in like Curly was doing? Or is it, is it wrong to have a wedding ceremony and make a vow before God that you're going to be faithful to your husband or your wife? Is it wrong to become a doctor or a lawyer or a politician in office and be sworn into those professions? No, that, those are civic systems that are perfectly fine. And in fact, Jesus himself uh, was on trial before he went to the cross and the high priest asked him to swear whether he was the son of God or not, and he answered. And so this isn't an idea of sort of like the civic responsibilities that we might have as part of our government systems to certify our truth-telling. But what this really is, is Jesus saying, in normal, everyday life, when you're interacting with the people around you and you're doing business and you're living your life, I'm calling you to walk in a way that is marked by honesty and integrity that doesn't cause you to either play games about whether or not you're telling the truth or to even need to appeal to something other than your own word and your own heart and your own reputation that you're going to tell the truth and that you're going to live up to the promises that you're, that you're going to make. So that begs the question for us today, right? Can, can your family and your friends and your coworkers trust you? The people that are in your circles, when you give them a promise or when you tell them a story or you tell them what ha- happened, uh, can they trust you to be people that are honest and that your yes is your yes and your no is your no and you don't have to come up with, you don't have to play games and you don't have to swear by something outside of yourselves. It's a little bit foreign to our culture, but it was very real in Jesus' day. But the high standard he's calling us to is to be people of honesty and integrity in how we live out our lives. All right? All right, let's spend the rest of our time on the last two we've covered and over the last few weeks. Again, anger, lust, divorce, now oaths. The last two topics that Jesus covers are retaliation and loving our enemies. And in these, uh, he's going to call us to a way of thinking differently, that think different idea, uh, that says that our heart and our attitudes and our behaviors towards our neighbors and actually even towards our enemies are a standard of righteousness that's kind of unthinkable, and it's a way of loving that's, that's that love of God that we were just singing about uh, in the first part of our time together this morning that's radical and new and not, it's the upside-down kingdom of our great Savior and, and his kingdom that's coming to earth that he's inviting us into. So look at verse 38, retaliation. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. We've all heard that. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other cheek also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So retaliation, this idea of an eye for an eye. Again, Jesus says, you've heard it said, so he's looking back at the Old Testament. These are the three main passages. We're not going to look at them, but you could jot them down, look at them later if you want, that mention eye for an eye. And it's actually always more than just eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. It'll say a burn for a burn and a wound for a wound and an injury for an injury. Uh, And and the idea here was like reciprocal justice that was going to take place. If a crime or an accident were to happen where you would have a particular type of injury or a typical typical law, a, a typical... 
a kind of a loss, the, the, uh, the same would be done to the person who caused that crime or that loss to occur to you. And it was supposed to be, this happens, so that's going to happen back. Now, uh, to our kind of modern sensibilities, that almost sounds a little bit extreme or a little bit barbaric. But the idea was that it was actually a protection against things getting worse and not, not things being easier. Uh, so it was justice for the innocent victims of crimes and, again, of accidents. Um, but it was also to be understood as this is not person. This is to make sure that personal vengeance doesn't happen, and instead that the the community and the and the local government of the of the space would make sure that justice occurs, and you wouldn't take justice into your own hands. Right? This was against vigilante justice, so that it would happen properly. And then lastly, it actually was set up so that it wouldn't be worse than in the vengeance that would take place, right? Because what's the, what's the natural human in way of, of getting vengeance? If somebody does that to me, I'm gonna get them even one worse, right? And so what God was setting up in these Old Testament laws was protection that somebody didn't make it, didn't get vengeance even worse on somebody for what had happened to them. So it was actually a, a protection and set up to be a system of justice that was fair and right and, and precluded people from taking it into their own hands or from doing something even worse to one another as they lived together in community. Now, Jesus, uh, Jesus did some or made some incredible statements here in this paragraph about retaliation that are also have kind of become part of our culture, right? All these years later, 2,000 years later, we're really familiar with the phrase turn the other cheek and with the phrase go the extra mile right? But what did they actually mean? And what did they mean in Jesus's time uh, when he was teaching this to the people he was with there on the mountain? The, uh, the idea of turning the other cheek is likely best understood not about physical abuse uh, or, or harm that comes to you physically as much as it is about sort of ultimate insult, right? So, like, think of, think of the uh, Middle Ages where the duel's about to happen, and the guy goes up and takes the glove and smacks him in the face and challenges him from the duel, and that's like this super high insult that you could, that you could give that's going to force the person to stand up for his own integrity and then fight the duel. Like, this idea of turning the other cheek is, is that sort of insult-level thing. It's not like, hey, you get mugged and you're ge- being beaten in the back alley, and so you go, hey, let me turn around so you can beat me even more, right? It's more, it's more the insult, and it's... It's certainly not the idea of somebody that you should be able to trust and somebody that should be loving you that's physically abusing you and you should just like let it keep happening and in fact invite more. That is not what Jesus is getting at here. But what he is getting at is this idea that your response to insult and to mocking and to slander and to persecution for his name and for his sake should cause you to not have to retaliate and not have to stand up for your own rights, but to radically respond the way Jesus responded when those kind of things happened to him. That's the idea of turning the other cheek. Right? Paul would say this years later, for the sake of Christ, this is to the Corinthians, I am content with weakness and insult and hardship and persecution and calamity, for when I am weak, then I am strong. And that's the, that's the kingdom living that's radical and new and a raised bar that Jesus is calling his followers into. It's like, what would it look like if we were willing to suffer insult for the name of Christ and we wouldn't stand up for our own rights? That's what he did, all right? That's turn the other cheek. What about go the extra mile? 
This one we get, we kind of screwed this one up in how we use this phrase in our culture, to go the extra mile. And let me show you why. We say go the extra mile all the time when we're saying somebody did, you know, you did an awesome job. You really went the extra mile on that. You know, Sal- Sally, that sales presentation, you went the extra mile. You really nailed that. Or, or man, I, took, I went and picked up my car from the dealership and they went the extra mile because they detailed it for me and I wasn't expecting that. They really went the extra mile. Isn't that awesome of them, right? That's how our culture uses this phrase, go the extra mile. But in reality, what Jesus was talking about when he, was, when he invited us as his followers and he invited those people listening to him to go the extra mile was not something like, oh, be an overachiever. It was actually in the context of being forced to go a mile, forced to do something you don't want to do. You see that in the text? And then responding by doing even more than the people forcing you to do it to do. All right? You know what, you know what the example of this is? Jesus is carrying his cross, remember, and he stumbles and he can't get up and he can't keep carrying it. And what do the Roman soldiers do? They grab the guy named Simon and they say, you, you carry it. And he carried it the rest of the way to Calvary. That's what the culture was for these people is they were living under this Roman oppression and what might happen to them anytime as they're going about their day is the Romans might, might coerce them into, into doing a project or doing work or bearing a burden or going a mile and what Jesus was telling the, the, the people there at the time was like, hey, if you want to display to the world what following me looks like, if you're compelled to go a mile and you don't want to, go too. It's not this idea of like, wow, you're awesome, you did extra stuff. It's like, no, you're, you're, you're suffering for my name and you are willing to go the extra mile in the midst of that suffering. That's a radical life that Jesus is calling to. It's hard to imagine for us. Like, we don't live in a world where that could happen to us in the same way his followers did. And yet, there's probably examples of how you could be mistreated or you could be in, invited into something that you don't want to be invited into and you could walk like Jesus does and like he's calling us to, to go that extra mile, right? Here's the deal. The overall thing that Jesus is doing here is calling us to this higher ethic, this higher willingness to defer like retaliation and revenge and retribution, even when like it's just, even when our claim is just to say, no, 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 I'm setting that aside for the sake of Christ and to a a, a radical new way of thinking, right? Think different that says, guess what? My personal rights aren't the ultimate thing, all right? Like, whew, we live most of our life like my rights are pretty ultimate, right? Like, I'm going to defend those. I'm going to stand up for them. They're, they're going to be protected. And Jesus is saying, look, you're, not that they don't exist, but your personal rights aren't the ultimate thing. It's not the top of the list. It's not the highest value. The highest value is actually other people. And in fact, it's other people who you may not even like. They're the higher value than your personal rights, Wow, right? Impossible, humanly speaking, to walk into these things. But this is what the kingdom of heaven is all about. And this is what Jesus is radically inviting his followers into, to live like he did. And he, you know, in, earlier in chapter 5, we had the Beatitudes, right? Blessed are you if this and blessed are you if that. Was the last one of those is blessed are you if you're persecuted for righteousness sake. Blessed are you if people say all kinds of horrible things about you. Doesn't feel very blessed, does it? But that's, that's the upside-down kingdom that he's, he's inviting people to live in. And he doesn't just say the words, he lives it out and he models for it, models it for us in amazing ways. Ultimately, 
on the cross, right? Philippians tells us that we should have the very same attitude, the very same mind as Jesus, who emptied himself, took on the form of a servant, and was obedient to death on the cross. Like, Paul says, think like that and have that same attitude. Be like that. And Peter would write, uh, quoting from Isaiah, or the imagery of Isaiah, about Jesus. When he was reviled, which means he was scorned and ridiculed and mistreated, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten back, right? But he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. And that, that's the secret sauce there. That's the key. How, did, how was Jesus able to suffer the way he did, right? He knew the end of the story. He knew that God held ultimate justice. And it wasn't his job to stand up for himself in that moment. He, he would invite us to believe that way too. It's not our job always to stand up for ourselves in moments where Christ is asking us to walk a different path of humility and of deference to the other person and say, my rights aren't ultimate here because the sake of the cross is a bigger deal, right? And then on the cross, Jesus would say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Wow. While being while being executed. Paul confirms this same, this same attitude of Jesus when he writes to the Romans, beloved, never avenge yourselves. Leave that to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, mine I will repay, says the Lord. And that, that same paragraph where Paul says that he, he is where he says, if you're kind to those who are, who are mistreating you, you're lumping, you're, you're putting hot coals on their head. Uh, by responding in kindness. And he says, don't be overcome by evil. Instead, overcome evil with good. The way to overcome evil with good is to, uh, to stand uh, in Christ-like ways in the face of your rights and, and, your su- and suffering happening to you and not saying that your comfort or your rights are ultimate. There's a great picture of this in the story of Jean Valjean and... Uh, Les Miserables, the, the story of the oppressed uh, French uh, people in the, in the 19th century. And the mo- I want to show you a movie clip that epitomizes this idea of turning the other cheek and going the extra mile and living in a Christ-like way uh, when your rights have been violated by someone else.
So we'll use wooden spoons. I don't want to hear anything more about it. I'm sorry to disturb you. You caught him. But I had my eye on this man. Oh, and... thank God. I'm very angry with you, Jean Valjean. What happened to your eye, Monseigneur? Didn't he tell you he was our guest last night? Oh, yes. After we searched his knapsack and found all this silver, he claimed <laughs> that you gave it to him. Yes. Of course I gave him the silverware. But why didn't you take the candlesticks? That was very foolish. Madame Gillot, fetch the silver candlesticks. They're worth at least 2,000 francs. Why did you leave them? Hurry. Monsieur Valjean has to get going. He's lost a lot of time. Did you forget to take them? Are you saying he told us the truth? Of course. Thank you for bringing him back. I'm very relieved. Release him. You're really letting me go? Didn't you understand the bishop? Madame Gino, offer these men some wine. They must be thirsty. Thank you. And don't forget. Don't ever forget. You've promised to become a new man. Promise? Why are you doing this? Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil. With this silver, I bought your soul. I've ransomed you from fear and hatred. And now I give you back to God. powerful, huh? And you can see yourself in both characters, right? We are the enemy of God. We are the robbers and the thieves that uh, undeservedly have received grace. And we have the opportunity and the calling like the bishop to live in ways of radical love for those who are enemies of ours or those who mistreat or those who act against us in ways that say, here's who Jesus is. I give you mercy and grace and release and invite you to walk in a new way of righteousness and good. One last paragraph, and we're finished with chapter five. And it folds right in with the idea of retaliation. And Jesus says to love our enemies, not just our friends. In 43 and following says this, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. By the way, the Old Testament doesn't say hate your enemy. It only says the love your neighbor part. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And he'll go on to say, as you, as you read there, like, if you only love the people who are easy to love that you already like, that's no better than anyone else does. I'm calling you to do something grander and love those who are hard to love. In fact, love those who persecute you and pray for them, right? Now, the, uh, the Old Testament actually did give words about uh, being kind to your enemies as a, as a path of wisdom. But somehow Jesus' listeners at that time, the Pharisees and the scribes, would have arrived at a point where they're like, yeah, love the people who are your, 
your neighbors that are like you and a part of your bubble and are comfortable, but there's no need to love those who are unlovable, who are actually our enemies and outside of us. Don't love the Romans, don't love the Gentiles, and don't love the Samaritans, right? Remember that story where Jesus actually redefines neighbor? And he's doing that here as well. He's saying the idea of neighbor is way wider than you think it is. It's really everybody. And in fact, it's the ones that are harder to love that I'm calling you to love. Because loving the easy people, that's what everybody does. But I'm calling you to love the hard people. And he redefines neighbor in a radical way that goes, this is outside of your comfort level. It's outside of the bubble of the people who are your people. I'm calling you to love people who are different than you and people that are really hard to love, right? Do you have enemies? As I was getting ready for this, for this this week, I was trying to, I was like thinking like, who are my enemies? Like, I, I don't live in a, in a culture in a time where I, I like have a lot of like real obvious enemies. But then when you really stop and you talk to your wife about it <laughs> and you begin to realize, yeah, actually there are people who have mistreated me. There are people who have slandered me. There are people uh, who are not my friends in some ways. And Jesus is calling me and inviting me to love them in radical ways. The ultimate of that is what our brothers and sisters all over the world have faced ever since Jesus left and went back to the Father. And it's happening right now today, but it's not happening so much to us. And that's like real persecution, right? If you've read this book, um, the Insanity of God. Uh, it's, a, it's a radical, life-changing book where you realize what people are going through for the name of Christ and how beautiful it is as they live out his kingdom. So there's a story here. The, the author is interviewing people all over the world who've suffered persecution. And he's in uh, Eastern Europe uh, talking to a gentleman named Stoyan, whose father had been a pastor during communist rule and was imprisoned for being a pastor. And... Um, what, what happened to his dad is he was in sort of a temporary prison and there was a particular guard that would come to him every morning while he was in prison, for the, again, for preaching the gospel. Bring him his breakfast that was toast. But I'm going to gross you out and say something not very nice to say in any place, certainly not in church. He would bring him toast that was spread with his own waste, human excrement, every day on the toast. And that was enforced him to eat it. Can you imagine that happening to you? So ultimately, he was transferred to another prison, and he spent years in prison. Remarkably, he was released. Kind of an uncommon story, because most of them would have been put to death. But he was released from prison, restored to his family, began once again to preach the gospel every Sunday in churches. And then one day, this is years after the toast, one day... Uh, a, a dear old woman had been in the service and came up to the pastor after the service and said, can you, can you help me? Can you pray for my son? Can you help me care for my son? He's very sick. He's gone blind. I need medication for him. Can you please help me care for him? You can imagine what's about to happen. So they get the medicine, and he goes to the house, and the woman takes him back to the back room. There lying in the bed is guess who, All right? That same guard who had brought him the toast every morning. Can you imagine being in that situation and being, and, and being invited? Like almost, I don't know, is that harder than if he had been just killed in the prison? I don't know. Like to, to, to sit there and, and, and he, it says that he breathed a prayer, Lord Jesus, don't let me fail you in this moment. Isn't that a cool attitude? 
And he had the opportunity to love that man who had been so cruel to him. And in so doing, shine a bright light of who Jesus is, right? The, the interesting thing about persecution that way is that you can't plan ahead to be ready for it, right? But the amaz- like people who live those lives will share with you, yeah, I'm not amazing. I didn't like decide ahead of time I was going to do that, but God empowers it in the moment to be able to live radically that way towards their enemies. And guess what? In circumstances that we walk in that aren't quite so dramatic as that, God empowers it in us as well. That's the key for how to live this stuff out. And that's how we're going to finish up this morning as we uh, begin to respond to God's word. We talked a lot last week about this idea that we cannot attain this righteousness that Jesus is talking about. He does it for us, and it comes to us as a gift. And he lived it out in an amazing way. We sang about it a minute ago, and Paul would say it this way, for while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more have we been, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Jesus' radical love is towards us, and that radical love is what can empower us to be that way towards others and to live that way towards others. There's two kinds of righteousness that theologians talk about. The first is what we, what we really spent our time on last week, positional righteousness. What does that mean? That means in God's eyes, we're righteous because we're wearing Jesus's righteousness. That's positional righteousness. But it doesn't mean we act righteous, right? It just means we have it, we're, we're clothed in it. But there's also this idea of practical righteousness. How do, we, how do we actually obey this stuff? How do we actually live it out? How does that actually happen for us who are like broken, sinful people who are really, we'd really rather be vengeful. We'd really rather stand up for our own rights. We'd really rather not love our enemies. How does that even happen, all right? So three possibilities. First, legalism. We just, you know, we perform. We decide ahead of time. We muster up the strength and the courage and we do it, right? Does that work? No? Does that please the Father? No, we strike that one out. That's what the Pharisees were trying to do, right? Second second option is gratitude. Wow. Look how Christ has treated us. We are so thankful that out of the out of a grateful heart, we're gonna we're gonna obey him and live like him, right? That's a little bit better. That's that's a little bit more how we we tend to approach it. But I want to tell you again today, I'd strike that one out also. Because you can't do it. Even the most thankful heart can't actually live up to the standard that Jesus is calling us to. Instead, what we need is an actually transformed, supernaturally transformed life so that the life of Christ begins to be lived out through us, right? See the difference? It's not just me being, wow, I'm so thankful that I'm going to obey. You'll fail, right? But if little by little we allow ourselves to be supernaturally transformed, we die to self, we take up our own cross, and we, we, we are crucified with him, and nevertheless we live, but not us, but Christ lives in us, is the key and the pathway towards fulfilling this righteousness. Here's the verse we started with. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, right? A lot of it was there in what Jesus was talking about. What do you do instead? Don't just be thankful. Instead, let God transform you into what? A new person by changing the way you think. This is the power.
power of the word of God and, and the, the, the power of the resurrected Christ in us that we can actually do and live out these radical, impossible things. Not because we're thankful, not because we're awesome, but because he's awesome and his life begins to be lived out through us. First we believe, then we become, and then we do. You can't short circuit that. You can't just go out there and try to do it. You have to believe that Christ is our righteousness and then become transformed by the renewing of our minds, right? And these are the good paths that he's inviting us to walk in. Let's pray together. Hmm. Lord Jesus, our perfect model, our incredible Lord and King, uh, you've, you've, you've made it so clear what your kingdom is like, and you've invited us to be citizens of your kingdom by your incredible grace. You've clothed us in your righteousness, and now you've also begun little by little to empower us to live your very life out and how we live towards others. I pray that by your transforming work that renews our minds, we would leave this place renewed to be people who mean what we say and live with honesty. We would be people who don't retaliate uh, when, when we are suffering for you and when, when we are mistreated. And we would be people who radically love those that are hard to love, in fact, even our enemies. Please change us in these ways. Please give us eyes that steadily see who you are and become like you as a result, we ask in your name. Amen.